This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to look at your very words this morning. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide our thoughts and our hearts and our minds to help us focus on the message you have for us, Lord. And I pray that message be not mine, but be yours and be glorifying unto you. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as a side note, all our gods is apostrophe S. Not that everyone is a god, it's that we are all gods. I wanted to make that distinction. But as we approach this passage for this morning, we do so with a common backdrop or a common theme And we have looked at that common backdrop or theme for the past several weeks. And that backdrop is one of selfish bickering. And that selfish bickering was fueled by pride. And we've seen that theme throughout basically these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so if you remember, Paul referred to the folks at the church at Corinth as Christians. And he called them brothers and sisters in Christ. But their actions were no different than unbelievers. Even though they were Christians, they acted like unbelievers. They didn't act like they were Christians. And so Paul wanted to deal with that. Instead of rejoicing when others rejoiced and sharing in each other's sorrows, they rejoiced when others had sorrows. And they were sorrowful when others rejoiced and that was a problem the church was full of jealousy strife and envy and we're going to see that unfold for us as we go through this entire book and it dealt or focused on a number of different situations individuals wanted their own success but they didn't want others to be successful when you peel back the layers of the onion of human behavior That's pretty much what we are without Christ. That's who we are without Christ. We're not sorrowful when something bad happens to someone else. Something deep down within us is gleeful on some level. In fact, we're sorrowful when we see others tasting success and we're not tasting the same thing. That's the condition of human behavior. That's fallen man at its worst. Fallen man loves train wrecks. And they love to witness train wrecks. It's very common to the world. But it should not be common to the church. We are born again. We are a new creation in Christ. We should be beyond that, but unfortunately, sometimes we're not. And Paul was dealing with that type of situation in the church at Corinth. 
He wanted to point out their shortcomings and use it as an opportunity for them to refocus and redirect the direction they were going. One of the big problems that the church at Corinth faced was, as I said, a a great deal of dissension, but in particular, there was a great deal of dissension over their leaders. And they had teams, and they each wanted to follow a certain leader or a team. And they believed that their leader was better than the leader of someone else. And this was a problem. And it caused a lot of dissension and strife and turmoil and division in the church. We've already looked at this once. We looked at it back up in chapter 1, I think verse 10, when Paul talked about these teams. And if you remember, he talked about some of you follow Cephas or Peter, some of you follow Apollo, some of you claim to follow Paul, and because you were team Paul, then you didn't want to associate with those that were team Peter or those that were team Apollos. You thought you were better than the others. You didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so we, we, Paul deals with that, and he wrote about it quite extensively in chapter 1, verse 10, and then we don't hear a whole lot about it until we get to where we're at today. And he's addressing it again. But I personally do not think that Paul is re-examining that same issue. I don't think that he, he wrote about the issue of these leaders in chapter 1 verse 10 and then just left and circled back around and started up here again in chapter 3. I believe that everything in between is sort of parenthetical to this issue. I, I believe that he never left this issue of division over the leaders. And I'll show you why I believe that. If you recall, Paul spent a great deal of time talking about wisdom. After he talked about the leaders in verse 1, chapter, beginning in chapter 10, then he goes through this big, long soliloquy on wisdom and how worldly wisdom is bad and godly wisdom is good and the two don't really interact with each other But could it be that a lot of the division was between one group thinking that their leader was smarter or had more wisdom than the other and they kind of puffed up that wisdom from their leader and so they chose a team based on who they thought was the wisest out of all of the leaders? Or maybe one spoke better than the other. Maybe one was a more eloquent speaker because you recall Paul talking about that. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with eloquent words or, or large words or great speech or speaking ability. I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. So clearly there was probably some dissension between those groups is, well, my guy's a better speaker than your guy. I can't understand what your guy's saying. He's up there just fumbling through his words and I don't understand anything that he says. He shouldn't even be up there. Quite frankly, I believe that that was part of the situation that was going on in Corinth. So I think that everything that we've learned from chapter 1, verse 10, through now, dealt with this same issue. And it was about the divisions based on the leaders in the church and about which team they were going to pick and who they were going to follow. Now that's not the only application we could make with everything that we've studied over the past few weeks, but I believe that is the focus of Paul's application 
to that. Last week, we looked at being babes in Christ and what that looked like or what that meant and what Paul was referring to when he called them babes in Christ. When he left them the first time, they were babes in Christ. He didn't give them a lot of meat because they couldn't handle it. And now he writes back to them saying, I wish you all were mature enough to be able to digest what I'm wanting to give you, but you're not. You're still babes and you should be mature. He addressed them in that way because they were still needing milk as infants need milk whenever they should have been eating whole food. And we ended last week's passage with Paul writing, quote, to the one who says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, are you not acting in a human way and not in a Christian way? So he was pointing out to them that by choosing teams by looking down on those others that followed other teachers and vice versa, you were acting like you weren't Christian. Your actions were no different than those on the street, those who don't believe. So that sets up for us today's passage as Paul continues to deal with this issue. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now notice who gets left out here, right? There's, there's somebody that gets left out. From If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, we had more than Apollos and Paul. Anybody know who gets left out of this group? Peter, Cephas. In 1.10, he's talking about Apollos and Cephas and Paul. Cephas is Peter. But now, all of a sudden, he just kind of hones in on Apollos and Paul. So I assume, and I'm making an assumption, I could very well be wrong, but, but I feel like that him focusing on Apollos and Paul is because those two were the flashpoints. Yeah, there were some that, that followed Peter, But basically, the division was between Apollos and Paul. And so we kind of get to really who's choosing who here. And what two teams are creating the most division and strife within this church. It is Paul and it is Apollos. They were the flashpoints. They were the main objects of the split or division in this church. Now, Paul begins with a question in which he supplies us with the answer. Sometimes he does, sometimes he leaves it out because it's rather obvious. But he asks us the question, what is Apollos or what is Paul? Clearly, they were both great apostles, right? They were both great men of God. But he's asking that to solicit them to think about their actions in choosing a leader and deciding to be of that group as opposed to being of the other group. He's telling them that they were mere servants. Servants. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants. They were table waiters, folks. They were table waiters. They didn't own the restaurant. They didn't own the food. They owned nothing. They come to you, give you water, and ask you what you want to eat. 
That's really what the Greek's demonstrating here whenever he refers to them as servants. That's who they were. They were merely taking your order. They didn't have anything in and of themselves to offer. Paul explains this to them in an attempt to get them to see the folly, silliness, into what was causing their division, and their strife, and their jealousy, and their envy. We are mere servants, Paul's telling them. There's nothing inherently wonderful about me, Paul's saying. There's nothing inherently great about Apollos. Mere servants. So we see that they are table waiters, that they are servants, and then we notice the next phrase, through whom you believed. Through whom you believed. The power that brought the people of Corinth to faith did not reside within Paul or Apollos. They didn't have any inherent power to help someone come to faith. The power that brought each of them to faith was given from God. And it came through the gospel message based on whoever shared that gospel message with the listeners. The power of faith does not or did not reside in Paul or Apollos. The power of faith does not reside in me. It doesn't reside in Brad or Brady or Tammy or Stephanie or anybody else that teaches or leads or does anything in this church. There is no power that has any sort of saving merit within us as individuals. None. None. We who teach, preach, share are conduits. We are conduits for the power of God. That is the power of faith that leads to salvation. Hopefully most all of us have electricity in our homes, right? If you don't, I apologize. Taking a risk here. As part of that, you have wires throughout your house. There is nothing inherently powerful about those wires. Nothing. There are a bunch of copper and insulation. That's it. But when the electricity runs through them, we can turn on the switch and it illuminates. There's light that comes from that. The wires is a conduit for the power that is running through them, sort of like your plumbing in your house. We all have a bunch of pipes. There's nothing inherently good in and of the pipes, other than they serve as a conduit for the water that we drink that is refreshing, that brings life, that sustains life. Paul and or Apollos does not save people, did not save people. They did not have that power. They were the mere vessels that, they, that God used to give faith to his people. I find this passage incredibly important for everybody. This passage is incredibly important for those who preach, teach, and it's also incredibly important for those who listen and who are taught. 
It helps us not focus on following an individual. It helps us to not get so caught up into this person that they are so good and alternatively that they may be so bad that we lose sight of who has the power and who delineates that power. As a preacher or teacher, it it helps us not to think more or less of ourselves than we should, right? You might ask, how could you think less of yourself as a teacher or a preacher based on this? Well, you preach or teach for 10 years and you share that gospel message and nothing ever happens. It's the same five people that's listened to you for 10 years and you see nothing. Instinct is you think, well, something's wrong with me. I'm not doing something right. But when we know that we're not in control of it and fully understand that, then we're less likely to take that to heart. We're less likely to have it negatively affect us to the point where we just want to throw in the towel, give up, and walk away. Alternatively, you could teach or preach or share the gospel and there'll be a huge, huge outgrowth of faith, revival. You could take that to heart as well. But we have to keep these passages that we're looking at this morning in tension to keep us from swaying or going either way. If we keep these passages close to our hearts, it aids in us not thinking too much of ourselves or not thinking too little or becoming depressed or downtrodden as the situation may be. I don't want to leave off the last phrase of this verse because it has great application about what I was just talking about. And who assigns each? The Lord. The Lord assigns to each. It is is God that assigns the response to whoever's teaching or whoever's preaching. It's not me. It's not you, it is God that assigns that response. It is His sovereign work that is at hand. And you all know this to be true, right? You've probably seen it play out. You may have someone that speaks before you with an eloquent speech, as Paul talked about, with an unbelievable ability to speak and with a wonderful vocabulary. And it seems like great things are happening, but yet whenever you look back and you see that there's very few of those folks that make it to the end. And that you have somebody like Paul does not come with eloquent speech or a great vocabulary. And he has a large number of people that is converted through him that make it all the way to the end. And I think that's important as we can see the application of this passage God assigns to each teacher or preacher now Paul goes on further and he kind of transitions into a farming analogy if you will I planted Apollos watered but God gave the growth neither Paul nor Apollos could make faith grow they could not Farmers, they don't grow anything. They may claim to grow something. No, they don't grow anything. They plant and water, and at the end of the day, it's all God. And it's the same way with faith and salvation. 
Paul says, I planted it, Apollos watered it. We did not have the power to grow anything. God uses his servants to plant and to water. The effect of planting and watering is faith. The effect of planting and watering is faith. But the decisive cause of faith is God. And only God. Always. We must never lose sight of the fact that it is God that gives the growth or God that gives the increase. Because as I pointed out, whenever we take it personally, if there is increase, it's so easily to look and say, hey, I caused the increase. If there's not increase, it's also just as easily to say, I couldn't get the increase. So both sides, both ends of that spectrum are very dangerous. And we have to keep this in mind that we plant, we water, but God does the growth, always. Jeremiah, perfect example. Jeremiah preached for 40 years, saw nothing, nothing. 40 years, a man serves God, preaches, and nothing happens. As a matter of fact, it all went the other way. The Jews continued to rebel and be disobedient to God. But he knew that he didn't have the responsibility of providing faith, that he was just planting and watering, and he didn't know when or at what point God was going to give the growth. That took a lot of dedication, and it took a lot of faith in God on Jeremiah's part to be able to to do that day in, day out. We must never be disappointed to the point where it's like, yeah, I'm done watering. I'm done planting. Because we don't know when God's going to start growing. It's on His terms. We're just called to plant and to water. And to plant and to water. And that soil may, may seem dead to you. You may feel like there is no way that anything's going to grow out of this rocky soil that you can't even plow. And then lo and behold, God breathes life into that soil that seemingly can't grow anything, and then up grows the most wonderful plants with beautiful fruit. It's the way God does things. And it is Him who gives the increase. Verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Only God who gives the growth. I think that it's important that we not read too much into Paul's words here. When Paul says that neither one of them are anything, I think he's saying that trying to prove a point. I don't think that he didn't believe that either he or Apollos didn't have value. I think he certainly believed that they both had value. Clearly in a lot of Paul's other letters, he encourages the church to honor the leaders, obey the leaders. So clearly he he says that they have some sort of value and he doesn't mean that they're not anything. I think that not being anything refers to their ability to make faith grow, the power to give faith to others. I believe here he's just dealing with a situation where the readers have chosen sides and he wants to make sure you don't, don't choose the 
teacher over God. Don't make that choice because it is God that does all the heavy lifting. It is God alone that is worthy of your glory. So in this instance, I think that he uses some hyperbole, exaggerates a little bit to get his point across. His desire was for them to be able to see the dramatic difference in the folly of choosing a leader over God or choosing to follow a leader thinking they had more power than another leader whenever actually it was God and only God that had the power to give faith. He wanted them to stay focused. Don't get sidetracked on leaders. Don't choose teams. Stay focused on God. Because the teacher is only a servant. And he or she isn't anything, as Paul says here. Moving on to verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So here Paul illustrates that he and Apollos are one. You all have, or he's saying to the church at Corinth, you all have chosen sides and you all have split the church in at least two different ways, perhaps three, but we're one. We're on the same team. We're playing on the same team, Team Jesus. But you guys can't see that because of the pride that is welling up inside of you. We're all pulling the same direction. We're all fighting for the same cause. Not only are they on the same team, they share the same spirit. We share the same Holy Spirit. There shouldn't be any division over whether it's Paul or Apollos or who baptizes you or who teaches Sunday school or whatever the case may be. It's all one spirit, one church, one God. He says... And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. So you see what's at play here. Like, well, he's not a very good speaker, so he shouldn't even be up there. He needs to move out. Or he didn't baptize the right way, so he shouldn't be there. He's saying, no, God will do the judging. God does the judging on his own terms, not us as individuals. And the reason that's reserved to God is because he knows our motives. He knows the motives why I'm up here, whoever else is up here, why Stephanie's leading Bible study or Brad, why we do what we do. That can be scary sometimes, right? But without knowing the motives... We're all blind. We have no idea. God knows that. God will judge according to his wisdom and according to our own motives. It's not up or was not up to the congregation at Corinth to decide who was the best and who was the greatest. They had not the ability to make that decision. God will make that decision. Just because you enjoy one more than the other doesn't mean that one's better than the other. 
hope you can see that because we have a tendency to muddle that these days. God will judge their works. He will judge our works. He will judge my works and your works according and against what is pure. He will hold it to the fire and that should be left to him. Now you might not like the table waiter. You might not like the person that takes your order. But they might bring you the best, most fulfilling food that you've ever eaten in your entire life. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says that God's going to judge him and Apollos because for we are God's fellow workers that's what we are that's what we do we are workers we are servants we are table waiters God owns the restaurant he owns the food he owns everything of value that is within that restaurant in which we work Paul then goes on to remind them of this idea of unity if you remember back up in chapter one that's where he tells them to be of one mind don't be divisive and don't cause strife and turmoil in the church we are God's planters we are God's waterers and those that listen are God's field and God's building every teacher every preacher belongs to God every believer belongs to God every church belongs to God you aren't mine you aren't Paul's you aren't John Piper's you're not John MacArthur's you are God's and his alone So we should all be pulling the same direction, encouraging one another, not being divisive or being on team A or team B or worrying about anything except who holds the pattern. And that is God at all times. So let us hold fast to these passages. Whether we are teachers, preachers, receivers, you name it. Remember these words. That God God alone is worthy to be praised because He alone provides the faith that leads to eternal life. I think if we hold fast to these truths, we will view our own ministries differently and we will view the ministries of others differently as well. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank You for the lessons that we can learn from something that happened so very long ago as we see Paul write this church in Corinth where we know and understand how divisions that come through worldliness, ungodliness, can infiltrate the church and cause all types of damage. But Lord, let us not do that. Let us understand that you give the power of faith that as workers... We water and we plant, and you give the increase. And Father, as listeners or as students, that we just set our focus on you. 
knowing that you increase through all different types of people, all different types of teachers, all different types of preachers, whatever the situation may be, and that you have people respond according to your sovereign will and not according to man's eloquent words or worldly wisdom. And that so in the end, that only you are glorified in the process. We thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help to encourage us to walk in this path that's been laid out before us so that you may be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and join together with the closing hymn.